This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Webbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, back in Times Radio Towers. No away days for us, but Rishi Sunak is planning a cabinet away day this week. They're all off to checkers. Then next week, Keir Starmer's taking Labour's shadow cabinet for some corporate team building or something. So today we take a look at political away days. Are they ever a good idea? From Tony Blair's football matches at Chequers to William Hague trying to get Tory MPs not to dress weirdly when told to dress down. Uh, Brexit Secretary David Davis on the moment. He quit after Chequers as well. And the moment a Lib Dem cabinet minister quit and then the first person to address the party was a man dressed as a bee. All that is coming up on the podcast. It's a really great listen. Uh, first, though, as we kick off with our columnist panel. The Columnists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. Yes, we say a very good morning to Libby Purvis. Morning, Libby. Morning. I've been a keynote speaker at a corporate away day. Oh! Uh, demotivation. But... My brother said I was a demotivational speaker. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, maybe maybe Rishi Sunak is having his away day in Chequers on Thursday. Maybe he could, he could line you up. I'll pop by, yeah. Pop by, yeah. Uh, morning, Rachel Sylvester. Morning. Have you ever, have you ever been... I've never, I've never been on an away day, but what I want to know is what they're all going to wear. That's the terrible thing with politicians. They always end up wearing terrible jumpers and horrendous casual gear, don't they, on their away days? Yeah, we, we, we'll hear from <laughs> William Hague a bit later on where he, he says exactly that. When he instigated the taking all Tory MPs away, in part because... Uh, there were so few of them when he was leader that they could all fit in one hotel. Uh, he said the worst bit about it was telling them to dress casually. And actually, exactly. they got themselves in real knots about, you know, just tell that the politicians only really exist in suits. Um, quite a lot for Rishi Sunak to think about it is a way day on Thursday, Libby. And, but it sort of struck me... He's got all these all the, all these woes on his plates all over the front pages today. The Deems of Harvey's tax... Uh, affairs after he admitted reaching a settlement with HMRC over his unpaid tax. Questions about uh, the loan for Boris, loan guarantee for Boris Johnson involving Richard Sharp, who then became the BBC chairman. None of this is sort of any, any none of it is Rishi Sudak's fault, as far as we can tell. But it's just a lot of headaches, which means once again, he's announcing money this uh, this morning for, for mental health services. Nobody's going to ask him about that. It's probably not going to get very much coverage. Um, how much of this could we lay at his door? And what should he do about it, Louis? 
it's not his fault, but it's his job. And it's really depressing, this sense we're all getting of a handful of people who think of a million quid here or there, the way the rest of us think of a 50 quid overdraft. Um, he's a rich man himself, and he's a prime minister, and I'm afraid it is his job now to get up there, make his views clear on all of this, possibly sack um, his uh, incredibly brilliant Zahawi uh, chairman and um, talk seriously to uh, uh, Boris um, and you know all the others concerned about this business of the loan. Uh, he's got to wake up, he's got to be a man of honour and show us that he's not one of them. Um, he's only got a couple of years left. If it means his party then deserts him, well, that's going to happen soon anyway. Uh, I would really like to see Sunak just standing up and saying, this is all disgusting, you know, Money is money. Tax is tax. You know, we have to have some honesty and openness about this. Otherwise, there's just this sense of a lot of rich blokes kind of running things and in charge of everything from the BBC to the government. And it stinks. The other thing that occurred to me, um, Rachel, was that Rishi Sunak sacked Gavin Williamson for things he did not on his watch, because obviously it was... It was when uh, Liz Truss was in charge and he was he was sending abusive texts to Wendy Morton. He sort of slightly set the precedent that he will be judge and jury on things that happened before he became prime minister as to whether or not, you know, character matters. It's, he can't just say, well, this was all done and dusted before I took over. That actually people's past behaviour does affect whether or not they can be in his top team. Rachel. Yeah. Yes, hi. He also promised to govern with integrity and to put integrity at the heart of his premiership. And there is just now this impression of one rule for them, another rule for the rest of us. Um, and I think that's absolutely toxic for the Conservative Party, combined with this idea that they are the party of the rich. Um, can you hear me, Matt? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so it just the, the, you know, the the idea that Boris Johnson needs eight hundred thousand pounds. What does he need it for? You know, he gets paid more than one hundred and sixty, or got paid more than one hundred and sixty thousand as prime minister. I think most people would think, you know, that is a pretty good salary. And there's just this sense that it's greedy. You know, you 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 earn a lot of money, you should pay your tax. I'm like Peter Mandelson, supremely relaxed about the filthy rich, so long as they pay their taxes. Um, and Nadim Zahawi, you know, I don't believe he didn't know that he was supposed to pay that tax. Of course he knew. Um, you know, everyone knows that you pay tax on what you earn. Um, and Boris Johnson, why did he need this special arrangement to get an extra £800,000. Most people in the cost of living crisis, you know, are struggling to get £80. Uh, so I think Libby's absolutely right, it stinks. And it's a test of Rishi Sunak's character, actually, now. What's he going to do about it? Um, you know, the worst thing is that um, Nadim Zahawi actually had to pay a penalty uh, from the HMRC because they decided and declared that he hadn't behaved in an appropriate fashion. Um, so what is the penalty going to be? What's the political penalty going to be? What's the penalty going to be given him by Rishi Sunak? And we've heard this morning, when, uh, very recently, the BBC have said, uh, they put out a statement from Richard Sharp uh, on on the uh, the loan guarantee. He said, we've many challenges at the BBC and I know that distractions such as this are not welcome. Our work at the BBC is rooted in trust. Although the appointment of the BBC chairman is solely a matter for the government, I want to ensure that all appropriate guidelines have been followed within the BBC since I've joined. The Nominations Committee of the BBC Board has responsibility for regularly reviewing board members' conflicts of interest. Again, um, I mean, this is sort of another headache for uh, Richard Sunak, not least because I think Richard Sharp used to be his boss. 
uh, at Goldman Sachs. Uh, but Libby, there's also um, certain people, I mean, I won't name any names, but one of them is Alistair Campbell, going absolutely wild about this, despite the fact that, I mean, the, this BBC job has been passed around between political cronies for years, isn't it? Um, what was his name? Gavin Davis was a, what, a Labour donor. Um, his wife worked for Gordon Brown and he got the job at the when Alistair Campbell himself was in his pomp. Yeah, it's clearly not a very good system, is it? <laughs> clearly, uh, the, there should be another way. Perhaps the, the, the board should vote, or uh, you know, some maybe it should be some kind some kind of of, of national electoral electoral appointment. But no, it, it is a problem. And yes, of course, Alistair Campbell's grandstanding away like mad, you know, because that that just always happens. But I do think it I do think it matters, you know. I, absolutely, I mean, Sharp may be a brilliant guy, for all we know, but you know, he shouldn't have been a million miles from this. And, and now we've got our dowager Prime Minister Boris kind of pitching up at, uh, at the uh, at Davos and pitching up and, you know, trying to raise his profile for his speaker fees by pitching up again, um, shaking hands with Zelensky. Uh, the whole thing, it's just feeling so stinky that um, that we need we need out of it. Somehow we just need out of it. And the only way to do this probably is a general election. Well, that, you, know, you may well be right on the, on, the, on the border point. And I suspect, I mean, ultimately, wasn't it, Rachel, it's Richard Sharp's fault for not mentioning it before, isn't it? Um, I don't really know whose fault it is. I think it's all of their faults, actually. <laughs> I don't think they should have got themselves into that situation. Yeah. I mean, what is wrong with these people that they think that's OK? <laughs> um, you do wonder, actually, and maybe this is a silly thing to say, but would a load of women at the top be making these decisions? It does feel like a, a lot of sort of blokes swaggering around thinking they're above the rules. I don't think Jacinda Ardern would have been uh, behaving like this. <laughs> oh, let's not get bogged down in Jacinda Ardern. Um, let's, <laughs> <laughs> let's move on and ask, ask uh, do you ever feel you're being de-skilled by your sat-nav? Do you suspect your memory's been atrophied by Google, your concentration reduced by scrolling through idiocies, and your once jovial work meetings impoverished by Zoom? Uh, yes, yes, yes and yes, Libby, to all the questions you asked in your column this morning. <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, it's, uh, the, you you say earlier, you know, is making us stupid. Not not stupid exactly. It's just it is the internetification of the world does tend to disconnect us from the real and physical world, and there is a, a mental effect on this. But I'm quite cheerful about it because I think people spot this. I think people hate it. I think this is why we're getting all this cooking and crafting and pictures of animals doing wild animal. <coughs> sort of non-internet things just messing about and I think that people will rebel against it and especially against the internetification of administration. I think public bodies and companies and every kind of organisation will soon learn that we hate their chatbots, we don't respect them, we don't want to use any service you know, which is sort of dependent entirely on everything being online. We want more people behind counters. And I think there'll be a sort of mini revolution about this. So I'm quite cheerful about it. It's <laughs> happening. But people on the whole just don't like it much. Um, Rachel, one of the things that, that struck me thinking about this is now I know, like when, you, when you're, I know you're on your bank's website or whatever, uh, and something pops up, a, you know, a chat feature, now you know it's all going to be done by a bot. I just don't bother with it. I just forget that. I'm not even going to bother chatting. I'm going to phone up. And I'm going to join the queue with the, or everyone else is doing exactly the same thing. The, the, it was sort of, the chatbots were quite clever until we knew that they were all AI. And now you just say, well, I want to speak to a real person. 
Yeah, totally. And there's a sort of code where, what you know, you have to say, speak to agent or whatever on the recorded message to try and get through to a human being. Um, but I, we went on a family holiday to Cuba a few years ago, and it was there was absolutely no Wi-Fi or internet access anywhere apart from in the middle of the sort of squares in the city. You had to buy a special card to get onto the internet. And um, the teenagers were absolutely furious to start with. But actually, it was fantastic. It meant that we spoke to each other, we played cards, we chatted. By the end of the two weeks, everyone, including the teenagers, said it had been absolutely brilliant. Um, And actually, there is something about talking to each other in human contact that is much better than an online version. Um, you know, I, but I do think we mustn't be all doom and gloom about it. So with the um, Education Commission, we looked at the impact of social media, particularly on um, young people's mental health. And it's not all bad. You know, the, the fact that um, young people could speak to one another and keep connected during the pandemic was incredibly important and beneficial, actually, for a lot of people. Um, so there are we mustn't be sort of Luddites and all anti it. But it's just a case of balance, isn't it? And, and not losing sight of the fact that the human dimension is so important to us. Yes, exactly. And, and maybe maybe that's where you start. We were talking this last week with Harry Wallop when he was complaining about all the things put in place during the pandemic, uh, which, which could be lifted now. Suddenly, you know, you might actually start finding companies putting a bit of a premium on, on human contact. Actually, it's quite nice going into a shop and trying things on and talking to someone and all that. Um, uh, yeah, so it's, inter- it's interesting, actually. Uh, with Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester taking a look at the news. Well, the news just keeps coming. Boris Johnson's just tweeted uh, with uh, in response to um, his trip to Ukraine yesterday, saying thanks to President Zelensky and all in Ukraine for your kind welcome. A deeply moving and informative trip. Ukraine will win and Putin must fail. Slava Ukraini. Uh, Boris Johnson visiting uh, Ukraine yesterday. Right. Uh, the question I want to ask now is, when do you become an adult? Because uh, there have been a lot of discussions about this yesterday. Is it 60, 18, 20, 21? Defending plans to let 16 and 17 year olds legally change their gender. Nicola Sturgeon had this to say on the BBC. When I was growing up and probably 16, used mm-hmm. to take the view that there should be a single age of consent. And mm-hmm. I, I think over time, I think it is right to look at why can't a 16 year old, you know, drink alcohol in a pub? She later tweeted, this is bad phrasing on my part, so not having a go at the BBC, but this is what I meant. But this is not what I meant. I meant that there were reasons why you can't do some things at 16 and not others. I do not favour a review of the current age rules on alcohol, just to really clear things up. Uh, Rachel, and you've looked a lot at this. You know, you've done the Education uh, um, Commission, which obviously looks at you know when you can leave school and what you should be doing at different ages and that sort of thing. What year do you think you become an adult and can make your own decisions? I think it's 18. But but the issue is, are you only able to make decisions when you're an adult? Um, so the, one of the big issues is about voting age. Uh, and I think the problem with this so often in politics is that it's used by politicians. This kind of idea of what age um, you should be able to do things is used by politicians for their own purposes. So, you know, the lowering the voting age to 16 is always favoured by parties of the left and centre-left because they think that younger people are more likely to vote for them. Um, And I slightly feel with this um, gender recognition issue as well, that's being almost used by the politicians um, in in a kind of culture war political way, uh, in slightly the same way, rather than actually thinking about what is best for the young people. 
because obviously it's slightly arbitrary whether it's 16 or 18 that you can um, uh, buy alcohol, as Nicola Sturgeon says. Um, but what, what I think is a problem is when politicians are using sort of age of consent and young people for um, their own purposes. And that's, I suppose that's the trouble, isn't it, Libby? Is that no conversation about lowering the age uh, can ignore the fact that certain parties get more support from younger people than others. And certainly Nicola Sturgeon, when, you know, wanted to lower the age in who could vote in an independence referendum, for instance, uh, you know, knows that, that support is higher amongst younger people than older people. Well, I think Rachel's quite right about the politics of it, but I remember vividly being 16 in a convent school. Um, if I had had the opportunity to get smashed declare I was a bloke and vote communist, I undoubtedly would have done. <laughs> but then I suppose, you know, yeah, the, 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 but I suppose you just have to draw a line somewhere. At 18, it seems to me, to have worked pretty well for a while. And then once you start lowering it to 16, then why not 14? And then before you know it, you've got 10-year-olds voting. But then would they make any worse choices than everyone else? Um, I, <laughs> we'll see. I, mean, I just think it's a really interesting uh, question, which seems to be being muddied all over the place. But let, let's move on, because I want to speak to you, Rachel, about the latest edition of Past Imperfect. Who have you got on this week? So we've got the actor David Harewood, who it was such a powerful and fascinating interview. He, he talked about his own psychotic breakdown um, in the most incredibly moving way and compelling explanation of what happened to him when his mind started to disintegrate. But what was so um, kind of encouraging to me is that the way he talked about it was he didn't see himself as being a, a victim of mental ill health, but he, he said it had given him a fearlessness. He said that having been to the depths, having been sectioned, uh, he, having been in a psychiatric unit, he, you know, how can playing Hamlet or, you know, playing David Estes in Homeland ever seem frightening in comparison to that? Uh, in fact, we can let's take a listen. In fact, this is uh, David Harewood talking about his experience with psychosis. You know, psychosis is an extraordinary condition. You think you can control the weather. You think people are following you. You think you hear him getting messages from outer space and you believe it. I was fast asleep. And I just heard this, wake up. And it was like, I'm like, who the hell said that? And I, looked, I was literally looking around the room. And then this voice started, it was literally droning in my head. And I was looking around the room. And he said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Uh, I'm, I'm speaking to you from beyond the grave. He said, my name is Martin Luther King. And I started weeping in my bedroom. And he said, look, the minute I died, when I was shot, when I was assassinated, um... I went over, crossed over to the other side and I'm now speaking to you from beyond the grave and uh, my mission isn't complete. I'm still trying to close the gap between good and evil and I've chosen several people around the world who are going to become angels tonight and you are one of them. Wow, incredible interview with David Hayward on Past Imperfect, uh, which uh, you could have caught last night at 9 o'clock on Times Radio or you can catch it as a, it's a Times Radio podcast available on the Times Radio app. Uh, and wherever you get your podcast right now. And, of course, you can catch uh, Past and Perfect at 9 o'clock uh, every Sunday. Uh, Libby, what did you make of that? Well, he's wonderful. I, I mean, I think Howard is a fantastic actor and from that interview, a fantastic human being. Because to be able to accept the great strangeness and come back from it and learn from it is just magical. Yeah, absolutely. Um, who have you got on next week, Rachel? Do you know? Uh, it is Bear Grylls.
the adventurer. God, it really is a mixed old. It really is a mixed bag, yeah. isn't it? On the. Uh, on the on uh, best of enemies, love it. We'll look forward to that. Love to speak to you as ever. Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester are there, and of course you can read them both in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, pack your chinos. We're all off on an away day. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Sometimes when the polls are bad, the headlines are worse and you don't know if your cabinet ministers have paid their taxes, bullied their staffs or got their seatbelts on. Uh, you just need to get away from it all. So this Thursday, Rishi Sunak is taking his entire cabinet and political staff to checkers for an away day on the agenda, how to get things back on track, stop making gaffes and instead meet those five targets he set himself at the start of the year. And then next week, I understand Keir Starmer's taking Labour's shadow cabinet on an away day too. I'm told to be spelling out to his front benches they need to move on from just commentating on the government and instead get on with setting out an alternative agenda as a credible government in waiting. No more just being rude about the Tories, apparently. But can a political leader get away from their problems and shortcomings with an away day? Isn't the curse of the management consultant all just flip charts, trust exercises and sitting on the floor? Perhaps even as immortalised in the satire, the thick of it, they, maybe they're going to play a game of yes and ho. Free apples. Yes, yes and ho. Uh, free coffins. Yes, yes and ho. Reduce the deficit with spending cuts. Yes, yes and ho. Peter, Peter. Yeah, I want to hear new ideas, ricocheting off your synapses like a pinball, not just a two-year-old slogan. Huh? OK, Dr Jazz, let's hear it. We do away with computers. <laughs> Brilliant BBC series, uh, The Thick of It. Well, in a moment, we'll hear from David Davis, who, of course, quit his Brexit secretary after one of Theresa May's checkers away days. William Hague, who created the idea of taking every Tory away, MP away to a hotel. And, oh, the followers making the dress casually. And in a moment, the Lib Dem away day that heard that one of their cabinet ministers was being charged by the police. And they were then addressed by six-foot man dressed as a bee. But first, what is the point of going to Chequers, as Rishi Sunak will, uh, later this week? 
I caught up with uh, Sally Morgan, who was Tony Blair's political secretary in number 10 uh, after the 97 election. She thinks heading to the Prime Minister's grace and favour fav home in the Buckinghamshire countryside has its uses. The most useful checkers that I remember were particularly immediately after the summer holidays. So kind of, you know, early September, where are we, where are things, run up to conference, what do we want to achieve in the next year, really, and particularly between now and Christmas. I mean, they were constructive. They were quite, they were quite tough talking, um, but also sort of convivial. I mean, convivial in a sort of, you know, in the sense that they were quite, you didn't feel like you were taking stances. They were genuinely trying to get to the, get to the core of some issues and reach some decisions. And so with a group of people who, broadly speaking, worked pretty well together. I suppose that's a key thing. And maybe this applies in every walk of life, yeah. that you need yeah. to have a clear point as to what the purpose of the meeting is. Yeah. Is it to try and solve this disagreement on public service reform? Yeah. Is it to bring everyone up to speed with what we want to achieve in the next yeah. few months? If it's, oh, let's just get everyone out into the countryside and see if we can get on a bit better. Yes. Yes. You're not going, that's going to be less successful. I don't think we did that. I don't think yeah. we ever did that. I don't think we ever took people out and thought this is just going to be a sort of a friend, let's let's all try and be jolly. I don't think we actually ever did that. I think we either did a political cabinet or it was broadly a number 10 um, day where we were really trying to work out the coming period properly. And particularly, I think, think about conference. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I think probably there's all this stuff always talked, isn't there, about, you know, social governance stuff. And actually, I think in many ways we were quite structured, as, you know. And so we got right through, I can't remember when it started, but Tony used to do this Sunday night note every week that we used to discuss on a Monday morning. And his post-summer holiday one could run to 25 pages. I mean, it was, you know, oh, yeah. And that's that was the and that was the foundation of a lot of the conversations. And then we would be honing in on some of the the big policy it was policy it was really about policy it wasn't really about presentation it was really about what are the big policy questions coming forward and then how do we translate those into into government uh, uh, tell me about checkers as a place to to have these away days yeah. um it, look it's a lovely place and there's something about arriving that you kind of breathe differently so it is a lovely place my memory is the food was fine, but I don't remember it. I mean, we basically went for lunch. You know, we had lots of coffee and we basically went for lunch from what I remember. And being the period it was, and I suppose there was something a bit new Labour about it, I do always remember a rather competitive football match because there was a bit of a Boise new Labour thing. So I do remember Tony being very competitive. I remember David Miliband being very competitive and a few of the others. So there was always a kickabout. Um, at some point where some of them, are, I can't say I ever took part, I think I just had, went for a wander, but there was always a bit of downtime and a bit of, you could go and wander off and you could have a bit of space. You know, if you went down to Checkers, you went there thinking, well, I'm probably there for, the, I'm, I may get away at lunchtime, but I may be there for the day and it'll take as long as it takes to reach a conclusion on something. Whereas the diary in number 10 is, well, you know, that's the nine o'clock, that's the 9.30, that's the whatever you don't have long enough necessarily. You've got what you've been scheduled to have rather than um, it being more open-ended, I think. So I think it is different. And what about in opposition? Were you ever involved in the, just thinking ahead to Keir Starmer having one next week, were you ever involved in those? Is, is, is there value in that and getting the team away, away from Westminster? Actually, because they don't, they have the opposite problem. They don't have enough infrastructure around them a lot. I think it's a really good idea. I mean, look, I think it's a, I mean, my memory in opposition, although it's such a long time ago now, but... 
was certainly, obviously, um, we had Philip Gould and Philip would come and give an overview of polling. And we always used polling to try and understand what was going on out there rather than it wasn't to try and say, let's fit with that. It was to say, okay, so that's the big issue. They're the big issues. Kind of where is our policy with that? And how do we explain it to people who are worried about things rather than what should the policy be? Um, but I remember Philip, I mean, very much Philip sort of setting some of, uh, uh, you know, the broad brush out, Tony, and, and at that point, very much a senior group of people. I mean, it was very much kind of Tony, Gordon, Peter, Alice. It was it was that, I mean, particularly actually Tony, Tony, Gordon, Peter, actually, I think, um, setting out broad, sort of big, broad, it was big, broad, big stuff that we were working on, really. Um, it wasn't those meetings where we really went through the minutiae of what we were going to do in the first, you know, 100 days if we got in. That was that was done in smaller groups, but it was very much the big picture of where target voters were. I mean, we were very, very focused on what are the swathe of people um, in the seats that we need to win, that that we need to be thinking about how, how do we... How do we talk to them better in a clearer way? How do we talk with them in a different way? So that's really what we were on about a lot. Baroness Morgan, former political secretary to Tony Blair, talked about their away days. But what can happen when an away day at Chequers goes wrong? In July 2018, Theresa May called her cabinet to Chequers in the hope of breaking the Brexit stalemate. After hours and hours of talk, a plan was agreed by everyone present. Except it wasn't. And 48 hours later, David Davis quit, saying that as Brexit secretary, he needed to be an enthusiastic believer in Theresa May's plans, not merely a reluctant conscript. So here's David Davis telling me about the lead-up to his away day resignation. Well, first thing to say is that it took a bit longer than that. Uh, the pre this, this, is, this is June or July, June, middle, anyway, summer. Um, it, uh, before Christmas, she had done, without talking to me, a deal on the Northern Ireland arrangements, the relationship between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. At the time, I said, this won't work. And I did consider resigning right then and there because I thought, thought, God, this is a nightmare. You know, she should have talked to me first. It won't work. And it's, in fact, in defiance of what she said. However, I decided to stick it out and try and make it work. And progressively through the time, it became, I mean, I won a few battles then, then, uh, and then they basically did a shadow policy. They did something without talking to me. So we get to Chequers. Um, I knew the policy she was going to propose was one I couldn't stand. I argued against it. Uh, I think the vote went about 20 votes to four against me. Um, and I thought, that's it. And by the way, I, the day before, I told my minister that I was going to resign, right? I said, but not tomorrow, so keep it yourself. Um, so Steve Baker, for example, knew I was going to go, and so did others. And um, I then decided, right, I'm going to do this under my own control on Sunday. I mean, if you think, you know, Francis Drake going to play bowls, I was going to watch the Formula One yep. at Silverstone, right? And I drove, oh, my sister, not my sister, my daughter, who, who'd um, had a terrible year or two with her children, uh, she had a disabled child, uh, drove me over there. She's, she's the big fan. I'm, I'm basically the, the bag carrier. Um, and on the way, I called up the various Brexiteers in Cambridge. I thought, if I issue my my resignation at 11 o'clock tonight, which was the plan to keep it under my control, um, they'll all get rung up at half past 11 and be caught out. So I said, yeah, this is what I'm doing, so you know how you answer and so on. Um, and Boris uh, was a bit taken aback, um, didn't really agree with the policy and said, you know, if you go, 
you resign, I'll have to resign. You know, I said, yep, that's probably right. Um, uh, it was a bit longer than that, and the detail can last for another day. Um, and right enough, I went, and around about 24 hours later, roughly, he went too. Um, uh, funnily enough, I mean, when he got into when he got into uh, into office, as it were, um, we had another meeting, and he threw everybody out the room. And he said to me, what do you want? I said, what do you mean, what do I want? And he said, well, what do you want? He said, if you hadn't resigned, I wouldn't have resigned. And if we hadn't resigned, there we'd be still talking about withdrawal agreement 14 and a half, you know? And, and I said, nothing you can give me, Boris. So, so, um, so, so he thinks it's down to you that he's Prime Minister? Yeah, that's what he said at the time. I assume he believes what he said. You know, <laughs> David Davis there, playing how his resignation from an away day at Chequers Ultimately, led to Boris Johnson becoming Prime Minister. We are taking a look at the art of the political away day. Rishi Sunak takes his cabinet to Chequers this week. Then next week, Keir Starmer is having a day out with his shadow cabinet. So, what about not just going away with your top ministers, but all of your MPs? That was the brainwave of William Hague after the Tories suffered a crushing defeat. As the new leader, he hoped a little break would be good for morale. Well, this was 1997, and the Tory party needed a lot of things, including away days. It had just been devastated in the general election. We'd lost half the MPs. We'd, we'd largely lost the wrong half of the MPs from the leader's point of view, you know, because many of the most talented ones had lost their seats. The Conservative Party was suddenly, it, it needed to pull itself together. The MPs needed to know each other uh, better. And they'd gone down to a manageable size. You know, once, you, once you've got 165 MPs, which was what we had in 1997, you could fit them all into a decent-sized hotel. And I found a hotel, or my staff did, at Eastbourne, which had 165 rooms. You know, so it was within striking distance. It was a nice place. Um, but the idea was to be more collegiate, you know, to give the, um, the rank-and-file MPs the chance to discuss things with the party leadership. Obviously, that, the sort of ideas behind it were the ideas you have behind any away day in any organisation. We just hadn't done that sort of thing before, and there were a lot of suspicions about it, um, that things were going to happen that we didn't have actually in my book because I was the new leader of the party and Archie Norman, who like me was a McKinsey consultant, was one of my lieutenants. They all thought they were going to be forced to do sort of mental tests or, um, or play games and do team building things that were beneath their dignity. And so many rumors went round about what they were going to be asked to do. I spent half my time reassuring them no, we're just going to a hotel to talk about the future of politics. So they were really suspicious. And so when you get there, what actually went on? Well, as I said, the worst things they feared did not go on. One of the rumours was that they would have to share rooms with people they didn't like. There were rumours put about by Alan Clark, mischievously, um, that someone was going to have to share a room with Anne Widdicombe, uh, for instance. And I honestly received strong representations from the redoubtable Sir Nicholas Winston that he was not going to share a room with anybody he didn't want to. Well, no one was going to have to share a room. Um, so uh, those things didn't happen. 
Um, but what actually happened was entirely what you would expect. We had a pollster along to tell us in detail how the party was doing in popular opinion, which was dreadfully at the time. But, you know, trying to encourage the idea the leadership and the MPs would have a common understanding of what the electorate felt about us. Um, we had other people talking about campaigning techniques, MPs who'd done particularly well in the general election, had done better than the party as a whole, were asked to stand up and say what they did. How did they win their seat? Good tips for the other MPs. And then we had morale-raising things, you know, because the Conservative Party at that stage, well, it needed morale more than anything just to psychologically keep going in Tony Blair's age of dominance. So we had some great speakers from the rest of the world. But one thing you can really get if you're um, if, if you're one of the great political parties of this country, albeit a bit down and out, is people will come from all over the world to come and speak to you. So giving people a bit of hope, a whole mixture of those sorts of things and a fun dinner together. And of course, at the end of um, 48 hours like that, the MPs do feel a bit more united than they do at the beginning. So these things do have some value. We need to talk about fashion because a, a politician or frankly a journalist who knows, put on a suit and a tie and you know where you are then. But what do you wear to a, an away day? Well, this was particularly disastrous uh, at that time because uh, politicians since the, in the 25 years since then, politicians have got a bit better at smart casual yeah, because the actually the as we all know particularly in covid the, the what people are expected to wear has changed but in the 1990s yes it, you were either in a suit if you're a politician or you were in your pajamas you know there wasn't really much in between um and the efforts to turn up casual i mean in in where i realized afterwards i should just have told them all to come in suits because they came with terrible jumpers and trousers that didn't fit properly and jackets that looked like they'd just been in the golf club and you know or been in the golf club for 30 or 40 years um and it was a real mix and i still have the cartoon on the wall at home uh where there's me and ken clark and john redwood and it's uh, the caption is Another minority group arrives on the South Coast in search of a better life. And, uh, and that was, of course, <laughs> that was um, a good summary of the Conservative Party. That's it. All in the wrong clothes, not matching with each other. I think that's not so difficult now. MPs are more used to um, casual wear. And there are far more women MPs now which changes this uniform uh, suit wearing that we used to have. And what about subsequent ones you've been to? The one that particularly sticks in my mind is Alan Duncan dressing up as Ali G. Was that a David Cameron away day? Yeah, I think mercifully I missed that. Al Alan Duncan is a great friend of mine and he's got a great sense of humour, but he does sometimes get carried away. And um, I think I missed that. Of course, in David Cameron's day, I was the foreign secretary. And this was a great excuse to miss a lot of, miss anything I didn't want to go to. Uh, and to find there was a pressing engagement uh, somewhere in Central Asia. Uh, so I think I managed to miss that one. They became more unwieldy. Of course, in David Cameron's day, there were twice as many MPs 
as when I started holding these things in the late 1990s, the party was much more successful. Um, but that meant they had, they had, of course, had lost that intimacy. Once you have 350 MPs away together, well, not all of them do get to talk to the leader of the party uh, and the cabinet members, you know, it's, um, but they, they was, they still work, you know, it, it's, um, I think that's the, the main thing that in, in every case that I can recall, they have left MPs feeling better about themselves and their leadership than when they arrived. Are there any others you can remember going to that were more or less successful? I do remember, but uh, there were dinners that they usually at the dinner between them. Of course, that people have to perform, and Michael Gove was always fantastically good at thinking of topical jokes about the rest of the cabinet and handing out, um, you know, made-up awards for who'd achieved what during the year. So um, somebody like that is re it relies a lot on having people like him who can do that you know who can really have a natural sense of humor and can perform after dinner in front of an audience and of course i was called upon to do that once or twice as well so what you find at those events is yes people who can give after dinner speeches they're in big demand to amuse the party uh very difficult audience to amuse of course because they've they've heard all jokes before and any they haven't heard before, they all write down and then copy all over the country so you can't use them again. William Haig on Away Day. So it was all his fault, the idea of taking every MP away. So fast forward then a few years to 2012. This time, it's the Liberal Democrats in crisis mode. It just been announced that Chris Hewn, who was then the Energy Secretary, was to go on trial for conspiracy to pervert the course of justice. But by terrible coincidence, all of the parties, ministers, MPs and senior advisors were in a way day, a weekend in Eastbourne. And just after the news broke, the first person to address the party was a six-foot man dressed as a bee. And the man to blame was the local Eastbourne MP, Stephen Lloyd. The plan for the bee, and now, you know, I need to get this right, Matt, the bee was kept hidden because my speech was to be the penultimate one at the end of the day, just before the leader's speech. And the, the idea was to be... This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. It would suddenly burst through the door, you know, Barnaby be putting the buzz back in Eastbourne, you know, rapturous applause. Now, I have to tell you the mood of the conference was pretty grim by then. You know, Chris had gone. <laughs> uh, Nick was on the phone all the time, shifting people around. Ed Davey, bless him, file mate. Ed was moved to Secretary of State. I was a mere backbencher. Humility, Stephen Eastbourne, has always been my second name. So uh, I thought, well, this is a bit of a pain, but lots of excitement going on. But I was determined to do my speech. Uh, and my bit, penultimate one on the final day, 
I was telling everyone, my colleagues, what I was doing in Eastbourne, what we were achieving. And then with a great uh, symbol of sound, I would introduce Barnaby B, six foot B, would jump in through the door, <laughs> rapturous applause. That was the plan. I mean, I was having to work the audience, Matt, because the mood, my God, talk about opening comedian and Glasgow Empire. Anyway, it happened. He burst through, round of applause. Three days later, we have our parliamentary meeting and Nick, DPM, is giving us an update. And he's also, he then said, and I just want to thank Stephen, you know, wonderful time in Eastbourne. Sorry that it was a challenging situation. He's about to move on. He suddenly said, actually, hang on a minute. <laughs> I need to tell you all about the most surreal experience I've ever had in politics. I see that thinking, oh my God, what is it? Well, fast forward. Uh, he had actually been upstairs, so he had uh, making all the calls in his room, you know, promoting, sacking, dealing with Cameron, calling Osborne, dealing with the media, you name it. So the poor man had missed my sensational speech that I said myself about what I was doing in Eastbourne. Uh, so he came downstairs and he heard the other side of the wall that I was obviously speaking. Uh, and he was standing there, empty room, and he was telling this story at parliamentary meeting and he just thought I better I'm just going to stand still collect myself you know I need to to go in and be positive be optimistic colleagues are a bit down in the mouth and he's standing there and then suddenly out of the side the uh, side of his eye right the other end of the room he sees a six-foot bumblebee <laughs> which which waves at him <laughs> so Nick said so I waved back and then went through the door did my speech um, uh, 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 I did actually say to a colleague of mine, it's one of my team, I said, would you like to meet the Deputy Prime Minister? And he said, no, no, Stephen, I'll keep, keep the, my head on because I actually have a, a, a aim for a political career. Uh, what I will say, and I hate to say this, Nick, because you're in California earning gazillions, uh, the bee, Barnaby Bee, who puts the bus back at Eastbourne, got a bigger bloody round of applause than the Deputy Prime Minister. Boom. <laughs> Stephen Lloyd, former Lib Dem MP of uh, Eastbourne, uh, rounding off our chawl of away days. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? <laughs> 